Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. We're joined today by attorney Steve Vondren and Vondren Legal. We're going to do a deep dive into copyright law. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're going, oh my God, I can't think of anything more boring. Let me tell you, you could not be more wrong. And let me tell you why you could not be more wrong. First of all, Steve is interesting. But more importantly, the topic comes up more frequently than you think. Um, we're putting on this podcast because a week ago, one of our members at Medical Justice received a letter from a law firm stating, you stole our images on your website and you owe us money. And that created a fanfare of activity, ultimately leading me to Steve. So a little bit of background, Vondren Legal is a boutique intellectual property firm with offices in California and Arizona. They focus on copyright infringement, including cases involving photo infringement, BitTorrent file sharing, software audits, boxing piracy. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Fair use opinions and the YouTube DMCA law, that's Digital Millennium Copyright Act law. Um, he's been in business since 2004, uh, serving corporate and individual clients, and he's appeared in over 280 federal court litigation cases, certainly more than me. And the firm was identified as the number one copyright litigation defense firm in the U.S. in 2020, according to Unicort. Uh, attorney Steve Vondren graduated from Whittier Law School with a passion for entertainment and copyright law. In addition to being an accomplished attorney, he's also a member of the Fresno State Baseball Hall of Fame and and played three years in the Cincinnati Reds organization. Steve, I did not know that about you. We'll also talk about that. Uh, he's founder and CEO of the Copyright Policy Institute, the Washington, D.C. think tank focused on copyright research policy and advocacy. Without further delay, welcome Steve Vondren. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate you having me on on uh, to discuss this uh, really important topic. Steve, how did you ever get into copyright law? Did you go through law school and say, you know what, I have a passion for copyright, I'm going straight into that field, or did you take um, various detours ultimately to, uh, to end up in this very needed space? Great question. Actually, when I first went to law school, I thought I was going to be a patent attorney. That's what I wanted to be. And um, so I there there was a new, uh, I was living in Newport Beach. There was a new law school in town, a Whittier Law School just came in with a brand new campus. They happened to have an intellectual property class. So I was really excited, a uh, specialty, I should say. And so I was really excited to take that. I thought, yeah, I would get into patent law. That would be fun to work with inventors and things like that. And then I got I got through the first year, and they had uh, interviews for the for the students for potential jobs, and so I was passing my resume around, and you know, and they were all asking me, well, what's your engineering degree in? I said, what, <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, I don't have I have a bachelor's in science and kinesiology, but uh, they said, no, that doesn't work. And so I loved intellectual property. I realized I had to move on from that, and so I ended up working for a firm that did trademarks and copyrights and they already had a clerk that was well established in the trademarks and I said well I guess I'll do the copyrights then and that's kind of how the whole thing started and the rest is history I suppose why don't we start with <laughs> basics what is a copyright and a copyright 
goes back, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it may actually be mentioned in the U.S. Constitution from the late 1700s. But what, what is yes, a copyright? Yes, that's correct. Well, uh, in essence, uh, it's, a, it's a, an original work of authorship mm -hmm. fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So that sounds fancy. Um, what I tell people is, is if your son or daughter draws a picture, a picture of a flower, essentially a copyright attaches to that. Whether or not you register the copyright, you don't pay the $65 to register, that's up to you. Registration has its advantages. But typically, anything that is creative and fixed in a tangible form can be copyrighted. That can include things like jewelry, computer fonts, fabric design, all kinds of things. And then, of course, the things everybody knows about music and movies and films and, and everything else. So. Um, and even your podcast can be copyrighted. So it sounds like yes. I, I was about to say the bar is quite low for um, for filing or, or for having a copyright. But then you said my podcast uh, could be copyrighted. And I didn't want to go straight into that, you know, with that segue saying that the bar is low um, and my podcast. is low. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, you're doing a great job. I, I think you uh, would be just fine. <laughs> OK, well, that's good. That's good to know. So what you're saying is. What it takes so much, what it really takes is something that is original and uh, when it's fixed, meaning that if it's spoken, for example, it needs to be recorded. So the recording medium would be the copyrighted uh, material. But by and large, so much of what we do every day in our life could actually be considered protected by copyright um, if we believe that to be the case. Is that is that an accurate statement or is that hyperbole? No, that's an accurate statement, and it's really um, you know so to you know it's one thing to have to, to for example a company can look around and say oh we've got brochures and manuals and we've got websites and we've got all you, they do they have all these um, creative things that are subject to copyright and you know the question is do you want to protect those you can see sometimes a case where somebody leaves with the company manuals and then mm -hmm. tries to reproduce a course, an online course. And so, you, you know, we may get a call from an employer says, Hey, they stole my, my uh, work manuals. Now, most people probably wouldn't think to go register their training manuals, but you could, if it was important to you. And, um, you know, you have a situation where somebody may be trying to copy and reproduce and, you know, and basically infringe, on little things that you may not be aware of. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's important for companies to look at what they have and decide um, what what they might want to get registrations for. So let's talk about registration. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, the mere act of putting something um, original into a fixed medium is sufficient to create a copyright but registration may be that extra sauce that provides you more benefit. So help explain what is that extra benefit and why anybody should, and you said it's 65 bucks, why, why anybody should, should pay the $65. And, and then finally, do you need an attorney to file a copyright or is it something that generally is quite, quite simple to do? Well, lots of well, questions. Well, you don't here. need I'm sorry an I asked attorney. Three questions in one. I <laughs> That's okay. Um, yeah, just let me know if I get off track, but uh, copyright registration, the main thing is if you register your copyrights, you have the ability to file a lawsuit in federal court. Mm 
-hmm. And that means if somebody infringes your work, you have the right to go to federal court and actually file a lawsuit. If it's not registered, as the law currently stands, you cannot file a lawsuit. So that's the big, probably the big thing, and that's why you see kind of these photo infringement cases, which we'll talk about, but that's why they have leverage. They, they, they copyright their photos, usually up to about 750 at a time, and um, so now everything's copyrighted. They have leverage for a settlement. They can sue you if you don't settle. The other thing is you get, if you have it registered, you can get um, statutory damages, and that's from 750 up to 150,000, and attorney fees. So these are two huge benefits to having a, a copyright registration, and it, it, coincidentally, that's what creates the leverage for these settlements. I'm assuming that you can file for the copy or register the copyright in between the time that you create your, let's say it's a photo, you take the photo and post it online and somebody snags it from you, it's possible for you to register it between the time of the infringement and the lawsuit. Is that accurate or do you need to have registered it prior to the infringement? Well, if you register after the infringement, sometimes you'll see this, um, you know, we'll ask for the copyright registration. They say, well, we don't have it. And they say, but we could file it. And I say, that's correct. You could file it if you wanted to, but you would be limited to actual damages mm -hmm. as opposed to the um, statutory damages, which, which are nice. They're 750 to 150,000. So wherever, wherever the case falls in there, but otherwise you're limited to actual damages, which I would say in many cases, you know, what is the, what is the photographer out? Um, maybe a couple hundred bucks for the photo, maybe some um, recovery fees and things like that. So it could be much lower if you're registering after infringements occur. It's important uh, when you're negotiating these cases to ask, do you have the registration? Yes or no. Let's take a look at it. And you, it sounds like uh, you can also register in bulk. So if you have photos and I'll use a specific example let's say you're a physician and you've got um, you know 40 pages of before and after pictures of how you do facelifts for example um, and you don't want anybody else using those pictures because they're your patients and you took the photos and the patients have given their authorization to use their images uh, on the internet um, can you can you bulk register all of those 40 pages in with one registration or do they need to be done one by one? Yeah, you can, you can go up to 750 um, photos and you, you know, you submit the deposits, the uh, actual uh, picture of the facelift photos and you would get a group registration photo for everything that you submit up to the 750. So that's what a lot of uh, commercial photographers do, like Reuters and AP and um, other commercial artists that are, you know, professional commercial artists. They will typically do that up to the max and have a lot of copyright registrations. And where where is it registered? And what's the location of the registration? Where do you file these? Well, you, you do it online, and uh, to your question, do you need a lawyer? No, you don't need a lawyer to do this. Um, I will say 
that I, I do have a video on how to register a copyright. It should, should give it a watch. It's on my YouTube channel, but it is a little, to me, it's a little complicated the first couple times you try it. So it does take some work. Um, there's also companies like LegalZoom that'll do low cost copyrights and things like that. Um, so, but no, you do not need a lawyer. You can navigate it, but I would say have some patience and some extra time on your hands so you can uh, really dig into it. Let's go through a real world example from one of our clients. He received a letter from a law firm called Higby and Associates. And I think one of the things they do frequently is um, work for clients who scour the internet looking for infringing photos on websites. And some of these photos aren't particularly sophisticated. In this particular case, it was a I guess a stick figure with the word liposuction and maybe a little cartoon behind it, but nothing particularly sophisticated. And the letter said our client um, owns the holds the copyright to that particular image. Here's a, uh, a Xerox of that copyright dated, I think in this case, 2017. Um, you don't appear to have license to it, but if you do, um, let us know. And uh, by the way, um, we're willing to settle this for about $2,300. Have a nice day. And actually, in the in the letter, it includes um, a sample release form with credit with credit card authorization. And I'm thinking, man, that is truly one-stop shopping. So why don't you break, <laughs> why don't you break that down for us um, in terms of firms that focus on this from the plaintiff's end, you know, who their clients are and and how and how and why these letters get generated and what to do. And and we'll use that as a springboard for for this discussion of of what physicians and healthcare personnel should do if they're on the receiving end, because frequently it will be something on their website that triggers the the letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you said it correctly when you get the, I call it a packet because it's, uh, as you probably noticed, many pages and it, it's got the demand letter. It says, well, you know, if you're not a commercial company, well, maybe, maybe you'll be okay. Um, and, and I've always seen that to kind of be their policy. If for some reason you have absolutely no monetization or commercialization, then they may uh, drop the case. But yeah, you get this intimidating demand letter and, and um, also says if you have a license by chance, maybe you had a, a license or permission to do it, give them a call, maybe they'll drop the case. And then it goes into the damages and you know that's the part I think that, that can freak some people out. They see all these damages and the, the 1202 claims, those are the ones where you strip the copyright management information off the photo, take off the copyright and the author's name. That's a separate claim altogether. So they they start pointing all these things out, and then yeah, you, you're correct. You, you have a payment form, and you can swipe and be done with it if you want. Um, and, uh, and sometimes you'll have a copyright registration uh, certificate. Sometimes you will not. So that that's what I call the packet, and uh, it can be pretty daunting when you get it. Now a lot of these cases will start out with a company called PickRights. Um, Pick Rights is a, a company that, that represents the interests of Reuters and AP and a company called Agency France Presse. 
And these are these are big media companies. Their photos, one way or another, they get out all over the internet. And so what happens in many cases, at least the ones that get to my office, is um, people say, well, I got this pick rights letter before I ever got the Higby letter. I got this pick rights or I got an email, let's say. And um, it was the same thing. It was a demand letter telling me from a company up in uh, Canada that tells mm -hmm. me I've infringed and I owe three, four, five, six hundred dollars for a photo. And I've had clients tell me, you know, I'll Google pick rights and I'll see scam, scam. And so they just ignore it. Well, that's probably one of the biggest problems because if it were me and I got this letter from PickWrites, you have a good opportunity to settle it really low value, uh, you know, a couple hundred bucks, let's say. Your, your, your chance to get out uh, is right there, but a lot of people miss on it. They pass on it or they go, eh, it's scammy or it's, uh, it's going to go away. The problem is they feed cases to Higby and Associates and Higby has makes a... Um, uh, I would say a pretty good living representing pick rights. RM Media is the company that um, you sent me the example on. Mm -hmm. um, that's with Nicholas Youngson. Nicholas Youngson, uh, one lawsuit I saw, the copyrights were assigned to RM Media. RM Media filed the lawsuit. So, um, you know, so the, you see these companies that will feed into Higby. Sometimes you'll just have a, a private photographer no association, just a private photographer that will that knows Higby does these cases, and they'll they'll feed a case to Higby. And so Higby is a is a very busy entity. I know that, and I think they're the I would have to say I think they're the tops in in what they do on the plaintiff side. And um, they have filed a couple hundred lawsuits, which you know adds to the to the uh, to the fact that they will follow through with lawsuits. So, you know, it creates a tough environment when you're on the receiving end of, of this, what we call the package. So that's a general overview. How do you analyze a case when somebody calls your office and says, I received a letter from either Pickwrights or Higby Law Firm or equivalent? How do you make sense out of it? And what are the different types of advice you give to your clients? Well, first thing we're looking for is, is there some kind of defense here? Number one, uh, did you maybe buy a license? Um, sometimes you can buy, I've had it happen to me, or I buy a, a license to a photo or a song even. Let's say I post a YouTube video. Somebody monetizes my video um, or strikes it and says, hey, you're, that's copyright infringement. I would say, well, hold on. I use a paid site, I have a license, and, you know, it'll go away with a, you know, you should have to write a letter to make that happen. But, um, so we look at things like, is, is it, is there a license? Is this commercial? Is this, usually when we're looking at fair use laws, which is a defense we always look for, um, whether it's a commercial use or a non-commercial use is an important question. If it's, um, on your home page, like a real estate company, on your on the header of your of your website, then they can say, "Wow, that's your that's your main feature, that's your bulletin board. You're using us right there on the home page, which mm -hmm. typically gets more hits than other pages in your website." So you know, we look at the commercial nature. Was it a de minimis commercial use? Was it you know something you you got some ad revenue on? And but you know, there's no 
there's no hits to the page. You got like five hits to the page and they're claiming all kinds of damages and profits. Um, we look at that. Is there potentially a public domain argument? Is this an old photo, something that may have been in the public domain? Those can be rare, but, but sometimes they can pop up. Um, also, is it innocent infringement? Is it something where um, this is a, a defense where you may be able to get your damages down to, let's say, $200 with a good legal argument? that this was innocent infringement. So things like that, I'll say, well, do you guys have a uh, media department or compliance department that reviews ads and things before they go out? And if they say, yeah, we have, you know, two stock photo accounts and, you know, we, we are very careful and I don't know how on earth this got up on our website, you maybe have an innocent infringement defense, which is, again, not not a complete defense to copyright infringement, but a very mitigating factor and there's case law as low as two hundred dollars is, is uh, appropriate so we look at things like that fair use and um, if we don't have those things then we probably need to be talking about settlements let's back up we probably for a need second. to be yeah just yeah. to educate i mean fair use is a term of art that you is this part of your native lexicon can you can you describe briefly what is meant by Fair use. It seems like fair use was defined or came about with Supreme Court um, jurisprudence, and then ultimately became a one of the main defenses for um, for copyright infringement. Just describe what it is, and maybe give an example of what fair use would look like. Yeah. So fair use is is um, we always go back and forth as attorneys on this. They always tell me it's a defense and I say, yeah, it is a defense, but it's also a right, it's a statutory right mm -hmm. under section 17 USC 107. And that's the right to use somebody's copyrighted work for comment or criticism, um, parody, you can transform uh, a picture, like to give you an example, like the Obama poster, somebody used that Obama picture and everybody knows the the I think it's red white and blue it says hope on it that's like a transformative use of an image and the photographer could say hey wait a second I took that I took that photo but the the person who transformed it is creating a new purpose what we call repurposing the photo giving it new meaning that's fair use and so those things are um, protected under the law now we always differ on what fair use is. Of course, a photographer says, no, that's not fair use. How could it be fair use? Um, you know, we license these photos. So it can be a really uh, gray area, but in essence, the courts look at four factors in determining whether or not it's a fair use. Now, you don't normally want to get into court to test out these factors, but you want to be able to let them know that you know what what fair use is, you know what the four factors are, and you can provide an analysis um, mm -hmm. to give you the, the short nuts and bolts of it. It's the nature of the use, whether it's for commercial or nonprofit or educational purposes like teachers, um, the nature of the copyrighted work, that's looking at is it a picture of a hammer or is it the Mona Lisa? Mm -hmm. um, number three, the amount or substantiality of the work that is used. How much did you use? Um, that's where we like to talk about using the minimum necessary to, to make your point. 
And four, the big one that, um, again, they say no factor is determinative. Each factor gets weighed and analyzed, but the effect on the potential market for the copyrighted work itself. So if you're, if you look at like the Obama poster, that was creating a, a new market. Um, you have like the case with the dancing kid on the print song. Um, hmm. Prince filed a lawsuit and it was a little kid dancing to his song. Well, obviously that's not going to affect the market for Prince's wonderful song. So things like that are the factors that get analyzed and, and crunch, crunch it. This is where we get fair use opinions and things like that. But that's, that's always the big thing that we look at. And then the finances of the company. Are, are you um, going out of business? Are, were you hit by COVID? Do you have the fund? What do, you, what do your funds look like? How many photos at issue? So a lot of things we look at. When you mentioned Prince, I didn't know if you were referring to, and I think you, you were the person formerly, uh, well, the person formerly known as Prince, and then he became the former person formerly known as Prince, I think, because yeah, he passed away right. a couple of years ago. That's right. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what a talent. That guy was really, really amazing. So, oh, yes. Uh, but bundle of but, energy. Yeah. So I look, he played we played multiple instruments. Yes, he did. And um, so we, you know, I'm, our organization is a commercial enterprise. I mean, we make no bones about it, but we do have on our website a blog site, which is primarily, in fact, mostly for educational purposes. We say so on there. We say this is for general educational purposes. And so even though we are a commercial company, does the fact that uh, something um, may that that may have been picked up from um well that may be a copyright infringement um otherwise be turned into fair use turned into fair use i didn't say that well what i'm trying to suggest i'm commercial our organization is commercial but we have an educational section which is purely education on our website if something were perceived to be potential copyright infringement on those educational pages would that shift the the balance uh, away from infringement and more towards fair use well what what you're hitting on is is the first factor of the four factor test and so that would be the nature of the use uh, right. whether it is for commercial or nonprofit or educational so yes that may weigh in your favor and then they'll look to the nature of the copyrighted work how much you used and in photos it can be tough because usually you're using the whole photo mm -hmm. in videos and in films and things like that you can clip down a a, a a video to you know one two three seconds and make your point real quick and get out um, that's the amount of the work that's used and then the effect on the potential market this is where the disagreements come in they may say well it's educational there, but people are going to to your site and looking at the photo, and yours is way mm -hmm. better. Look at your site looks better than ours, and so that's where you know we can, as lawyers and, and individuals, we can argue about this all day long. Bottom line is there's a lot of gray area, and most people don't want to take their chances in court. So, but you still want to make the arguments and let them know this is a right. It's in the statute it's laid out there yes it's also an affirmative defense yeah i understand that we don't want to go to court we'd like to basically get some credit for the fact that this is very potentially fair use so, so those are things they factor in as well and you're trying to diminish the the threat of litigation that's really what you're trying to do i think yeah i think you anticipated my next question which is 
does the labeling of these defenses and the, the surrounding facts serve from a practical purpose to assist in the negotiating process? Meaning, in the example I just gave you, there's a demand for $2,300. If it turned out that how it was used allows for an argument for fair use, among other things, can those facts be used as negotiating points to bring that number down that both parties can live with to $800, for example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's, uh, you know, like I said, as a defense attorney, I'm always looking for something that would take a little air out of the balloon, the litigation balloon, so mm -hmm. that they're not so convinced that, hey, we can go to federal court and do much better than this. Um, but yes, I mean, it's, you, you definitely want to be thinking about that. I like to point out all the factors when I'm working with Higby and their associates, um, and, and any other photo, photo, uh, infringement firm is looking at all the, the, uh, potential weaknesses, our potential strengths and negotiating from there. Once we have a good understanding of this is what we would argue, that's what we would argue. Okay. Well. Ours is good. Yours is good. Neither one is great. So let's work something out here. That's that's a lot of times what we're looking to do. A lot of people describe market rate as win-win. I, I sometimes describe market rate as when both sides leave the table feeling equally screwed. So, um, <laughs> but that's still a yeah, still market yeah, rate. that is true. Yeah, have to be delighted. The, you don't have to be delighted with the outcome, but you're looking for a resolution of the process. But the thing that I'm hearing from you, I think this is accurate, that the larger the demand letter, the the greater the certainty that you should get a lawyer to look at this stuff. Because if nothing else, they can analyze the facts surrounding the allegations and potentially craft an argument. And the plaintiffs or potential plaintiffs in these cases appear to be open to negotiating. And if done properly, whatever your fee is to handle this is probably far less than the um, a potential outcome with a go-it-alone strategy. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews, at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, 
Our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.